the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients, to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets and breast milk. If you have ever been a donor, you could have been the one who saved, prolonged or improved the quality of life of the person that we profile here each week on the podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. If you are new to the pod and want to hear our origin story, please scroll back in your podcast feed and listen to the first episode, which tells the story of our daughter Marley and her story of seronegative autoimmune encephalitis and the way that Australian plasma donors have saved her life. And to find updates on Marley, her amazing seizure response service dog Patty, our beautiful family with additional needs and all the news from the Milkshakes for Marley community, please join us on all the socials. We also love it when you share or tag us in your blood donation photos, even if you don't donate to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. It all just helps us to spread the message of the importance of blood donation. Today, we have recently retired NRL star David Mead. David had an amazing rugby league career, spanning 14 years, which saw him play for the Gold Coast Titans, play in the Super League for the Dragons in France, and finish with 171 games for the Brisbane Broncos. David was born in Papua New Guinea and lived there until he was 12. One of the great highlights of his rugby league career was captaining P&G at the 2017 World Cup. His life story is remarkable, and I really encourage you to listen to the interview that he did with Libby Trickett on her podcast, All That Glitters. After I heard that episode, I knew that I wanted to have David on our podcast and as part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. We have mutual friends whose babies have needed blood products, and David and his wife, Tanil had a premature baby who spent time in the neonatal intensive care unit. In this interview, we cover everything from his NRL career and if his sons are aware of their dad's success to parenting techniques and how to wrangle a spirited three-year-old. He asks me some really great great questions about what it's like to parent um, our neurodiverse tribe and we discuss his experience of having a premature baby in the neonatal intensive care unit on the Gold Coast. After our chat, David committed to becoming a blood donor as a priority of his retirement from being a professional athlete, and we are absolutely thrilled to have him as an ambassador of the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. I hope you enjoy my chat with David Mead. So today we have freshly retired rugby big league legend, David Mead. Welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. It's such a joy to have you as part of our community. Thanks for having me on, Kate. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. So it feels like you've run straight off the footy field and into a podcast studio. Um, You have your own podcast called the David Mead Podcast. And I think it was the day after announcing your retirement, you sat down with Libby Trickett for All That Glitters. Um, What about podcasts um, are you drawn to as a form of storytelling? I think... I originally started listening to them maybe in 2015, 16, 
And I've always kind of tuned in and out of them just to, you know, something to listen to on my way from home to footage training mm-hmm. and just something a bit different to you know, probably radio or music in the car. And from then on, I started to hear tips on how you could probably improve little uh, different parts of your life. And initially I liked them because a lot of it was based around training mm-hmm. and eating. And that's something I was heavily invested in, obviously playing professional sports. So a lot of the podcast listening for me was about education more so than entertainment around nutrition and how to improve my training and how to improve my body so I could uh, perform physically at a higher level. And I think that's why I originally, and how I originally got into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful medium. It creates um, a level of intimacy between um, the stories and the listener in a way that's kind of different to sort of your print media or any video type stuff. So, yeah, we found it as a beautiful way of storytelling as well. Yeah, um, it is. It's great. So in terms of telling stories, your podcast is focused on interviewing professional sports people on stories of overcoming adversity and resilience. Who has been your most memorable guest that you've interviewed? Oh, I've got so many. Um, if They're all memorable. I think if You can pick a few. <laughs> I can pick a few, yeah. I think my very first one was with a good friend of mine, Paul Aton, who is now assistant coach of the PNG Hunters and the PNG Kummels, the national team. Mm-hmm. He's a really good friend of mine. We go way back to 2008. And just getting that first experience of actually doing a podcast, I was so nervous. And after doing it, thinking, what was I nervous about? You know, I was just talking to my best mate. Yeah. And having it recorded for everyone else to listen to. Now, obviously, it's going to sound scripted because it's my very first one. And like even still now, I'm still trying to be my complete self it's still a working uh, progress yeah but I think getting that first one done with Paulie was memorable think that I could potentially do this as not just a career but like something I enjoy and what I found since from you know from that moment on is it's been very kind of therapeutic in a way and I, I spoke to Libby about that uh, a few weeks ago and and so I think Paulie's one would have to be my most memorable one, memorable one because it was the first one and I think it gave me the confidence to keep doing it. Yeah. That podcast episode that you did with Lib is one of the most powerful episodes of any podcast that I've ever listened to. And that was a big part of the reason that I asked you to come on our show. Um, we tell oh, awesome. so many stories of survival um, and resilience and people overcoming adversity, obviously with the link to blood products and blood pro- product recipients. Um But I think that episode with Lib was one that it doesn't matter what type of challenge you have got in your life. It's about finding those resources to overcome whatever it is and finding the people around you that give you self-belief and see you for all of your potential and who you really are. So thank you so much for sharing that story in the way that you did. It was an incredible episode. Yeah, it was good because Libby's pretty good at what she's doing and, you know, made me feel very comfortable to speak so (laughs) I think that's why I felt like I could share some more and I guess the more I do the podcast interviews normally I'm the one asking the questions so it's a bit easier but to be the one answering them is a bit different it's a different skill set in a way I guess and so but what I do realize is that being a bit more open about your stories uh, you realize that a lot more people can relate and connect to that Mm -hmm. and so 
that's a learning uh, process for me right now as well. And I try to tell my story as raw as I can so that you know, people can relate to it. Mm. So, yeah, that's, yeah, it, it was really nice interview with Libby. Yeah. Yeah. She's an incredible woman. Wouldn't we all aspire to be podcasters like Libby Trickett? <laughs> she's just a phenomenal, phenomenal Australian. Um, how old are you now? So I'm 33 now. 33. So you've already lived an incredibly full life for the ripe old age of 33. Um, tell me a little bit about growing up in PNG um, and what you miss about those days from your childhood before you moved to Australia. So I lived there till I was 12 before moving to Australia. But what I remember as a, my earlier days in PNG was life was very simple. I grew up in a house, four bedroom house, family living in each room. I was with my mum at the time. And, you know, we shared a room, uh, slept on the floor on a you know, thin mattress and we'd wake up and the whole household was full and kids around, you know, you're running around playing with your cousins immediately, yeah. you know, making noise, wooden floor. So once someone woke up, everyone else kind of, kind of <laughs> wakes up. And so that was the life. But because my mom worked in town, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents mm -hmm. in my earlier days and the farm was a couple of kilometers outside of the village. So I remember waking up and my grandmother would you know, butter some bread and we'd dip it in tea. And that was breakfast. Yeah. Very simple. And before school actually started, we used, I used to go to the farm with them and I'd spend all day there with them. And they'd be, you know, depending on the season, we'd be the clearing the land with like, you know, pulling the long weeds out of the ground or planting mm -hmm. bananas, yams, taros, those types of vegetables. Yeah. So that was a lot of my growing up. And then eventually when I got into school, I'd go to school and, you know, my family tried, my mom provided for me and family tried to provide for me as best they could. Uh, sometimes I'd go to school with no shoes on. And they, I, I would have shoes most of the time, but sometimes I wouldn't because most of the other kids didn't in the village and I thought it'd be pretty cool to go along the same <laughs> as the same. <laughs> and so, you know, climb coconut trees and after school, we'd gather around as kids and play rugby league because that's what everyone loved. Yeah, and so we'd gather four on each team. We didn't have a footy. We'd get an empty coke bottle and play a game of footy and call ourselves by the names of NRL players. So yeah, that's what my upbringing was like in PNG for the first twelve years. Mm -hmm. Can you comparing that now to the upbringing that you're giving your family and your children? Like, can you just imagine? having them grow up like in that way and do you get back much so that they can see what your childhood looked like or I guess as they get a bit older probably more so but do you think that's an important point of reference for them in terms of you know where they've come from and their culture yeah certainly I think my older one well he's six now and he's been there since he uh up to up to he was three years old is the last time we were there mm-hmm and the younger one hasn't yet. He's only three now, but we are going there in a couple of weeks. So yeah. and I plan to take them both out to the school in the village yeah, and get them to see what life is like there because, you know, I give them everything here. I try not to spoil them, even though I do. Yeah. Uh, my wife tells me I'm, I'm the softer <laughs> one out of the both of us. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it's important for them to see that so that they realise that there's another world out there and it's mm. completely different, only a three-hour flight away. Yeah. And I think, in a way, it probably makes them on a, more grateful for everything they've got here. Absolutely. And I know as kids, you know, wherever you live, that's what you get used to. So for me, when it's 
life gets a bit hard over here. I think back to how much harder the people in the village mm-hmm. have it. And a lot of my problems are just made up in my own mind. So I think it's important for the kids to experience that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that when you moved to Australia with your aunt um, at the age of 12, that you changed your surname to Mead in recognition of the incredible opportunities that she had given you. Um, What was the biggest culture shock for you when you moved to Australia? Biggest culture shock? Um, Yeah, it was besides the language, the Mm -hmm. language was a bit hard because... We only spoke language in school in the village. Right. And not much. So I didn't really speak too much those first couple of years here. Yeah. And that was a big one. But I think, I, I, I wouldn't say I was culture shocked. I would just say I felt a lot, I was very far from my mum and my two brothers yeah. and sister at the time. And so that was probably the hardest part for me. In terms of culture shock, I probably loved it because you know, we had sporting gear given to us and yeah. you know, rugby boots and the proper cricket balls, the cricket pads and everything. So that was a shock, but in a good way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I wondered that when you did that interview with Liv and you were talking about the fact that you didn't communicate a great deal with the other kids in Lismore for that first couple of years that you were there. Yeah. Do you think you gravitated more towards sport because it's kind of a universal language that you could communicate with them on the field? Yeah, for sure. I think when I went to primary school, I remember the kids playing cricket at yeah. uh, recess. Yeah. And so I joined in and I was half decent at hitting the cricket ball. And one of the guys said, you should come join our cricket team. And I don't know what I said, but somehow it <laughs> happened and I ended up playing cricket. <laughs> someone so, passed details on somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And someone, you know, it's funny now because I get a lot of messages from teachers from uh, primary school and high school now and they're saying, you were such a good kid in school. Uh, you just sat there and didn't do anything. Uh, you didn't play up or anything. Yeah. I was just thinking, yeah, I was just too scared to say anything. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> How much of a shock was that moving from the schooling that you had done previously into an Australian schooling environment? Was it more structured here? How different was it? Uh, in terms of what we were learning, it was very similar. Mm-hmm. But what I did notice was, you know, the, the chairs are nice, the desks are clean. You know, yeah. the classroom's clean and it's just a very nice environment to be in compared yeah. to what I was used to. Mm-hmm. And so like, when I think back to it now, it just it, it was like a nice, comfortable environment, but yeah. the whole being away from family and being too shy to speak English and being scared of being laughed at because my accent obviously at the mm-hmm. time would have been very, very different. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it was like. And so I think that's what made me gravitate towards sport. But in terms of the schooling, you now we did music in, in school. Uh, I think what I was used to in PNG was just maths and English. Right. But in Australia, I was doing maths, science, uh, a little bit of drama. Mm-hmm. So all these different subjects that kind of just open your mind up to a whole new world that yeah. you're not used to in the village because, you know, you're just trying to learn your basic yeah. English and maths. So mm-hmm. that's what I found different. Uh, immediately when I moved here in grade five. So when we started chatting about setting up this interview, we realised that we have mutual friends in the Wotherspoon family from Lismore. Um, I spent four years living on campus at university with Lindsay um, and you grew up with her younger brother, Sam. And I was actually saying to my husband last night that I remember plenty of times when we were there 
um, hanging out during uni holidays and stuff that Sam had his mates there all the time swimming in their pool or we'd all sit around on their back deck or whatever. So there's every chance that we actually crossed paths in another life before this one. (laughs) Um, How important were those friendships in building your self-belief to pursue a professional sporting career? Yeah, well, Sam was, I moved to Trinity after four years at Kadena. So Sam was one of my, he probably my first friend when I moved to Trinity. Yeah. And just a guy I clicked with straight away because, you know, we did a little preseason of rugby league with the Morris brothers and I knew him before going to school. So that was our introdu- introduction yeah. uh, into our friendship. And so those two years that I spent with uh, Sam and a couple of my other mates, that was a rugby league group in mm-hmm. that school. So, my transition from Kadena to Trinity was very easy because I had sporting teammates that I already knew. Mm-hmm. And so it made it very smooth. And now these guys were into their studying, homework. And I, I had a very good group of guys that I was hanging out with. And, you know, I think the hunger they showed towards their schoolwork, even though I wasn't good in school, it, it just helped me to find my own path. Yeah. Because... When we played rugby league on the weekend, uh, we'd enjoy each other's company and then go to school and enjoy each other's company. So mm-hmm. that certainly helped form a good environment for, for me to be in and for me to, I guess, be at my best mm-hmm. uh, in the schooling environment. So very important. Yeah, and to dream big and to find that passion and that self-belief that, yeah, it's so important to have those structures around you. Um, the Wotherspoons are certainly a very special family. And, yeah, they are. Yeah. And uh, I, I used to uh, go to the gym at lunchtime. And every time I'd go to the gym, I'd walk past the canteen. The line was always full. Yeah. And so by the time the gym finished, I'd be walking back to the other side and Vicky would see me. and There was no one in line. Vicky would see me and she'd call me back. And she'd give me, a, I remember she'd always give me a chicken sandwich or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it was for free. So she certainly looked after me. They will certainly never let anyone go hungry. I have never left their house a hungry person. (laughs) Yeah, they were very uh, accommodating and uh, and a lovely family. Yeah, beautiful. Um, Now, we have both watched from the sidelines um, as the Wotherspoon grandbabies have all had their own health struggles in the last few years. Um, And Lindsay and Ian lost their beautiful little girl, Frankie, which was just heartbreaking beyond belief. Um, but some of the other grandbabies have required blood products during their infancy. And in the case of some of them, they've actually needed blood products while Lindsay was still pregnant just for them to stay alive. Um, now, these aren't our stories to tell. And Lindsay is joining us later in the season to tell the story of their babies. Um, and there's an open offer for Sam yeah. and Kim to do the same when their little girl is a little bit more stable. But I know she has needed significant amounts of blood products in the last few weeks as well. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm really putting that out there just to send all of our love to them from the Milkshakes for Mali podcast and community, because I'm sure they'll have a listen to this episode and just to know that there's so much love going out to their families from us all. Yeah, for sure. From afar. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your family? I believe that you have two little boys. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I've got a three and a six-year-old Yeah. and the three-year-old goes to daycare three days a week. Six-year-olds, he's obviously in school, so yeah. Yeah, at the moment, the younger one, Coven, is uh, you know testing us out with the, the two to four-year-old stage. So yeah. those daycare days might be up a bit, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> they're good fun. Uh, I love having them 
around and, you know, we spend a lot of time at the park. Uh, just take them out of the house, go kick the footy around or, you know, let them play at the park because it's something I never experienced as a kid. So it's always, uh, it's always at the you know front of my mind when I'm playing with them just to make sure I enjoy the moment and mm-hmm. take it in as much as I can because they are growing up pretty fast. So yeah. I don't want to miss those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up as a country kid on farm um, and it strikes me so much with our kids that they have so much stimulation in their world that they don't have enough time to just be bored and to just to have to go and create their own fun and entertainment with, you know, like you were saying, kicking a Coke bottle around to make a game of rugby league or, you know, there was always plenty of things to be done in a farm environment. Like the work is never done. So we didn't have lots of time to just do that. And um, all of our children um, have autism. They all have neurodevelopmental disabilities. The boys both have ADHD as well. And, We've found so much success with them with literally what you just said, when they're having a rough time, just to take them down to the footy oval and get them to kick the shit out of a football for half an hour. And they come back such different people after they've had the opportunity to move their bodies and use their bodies and really reset that mental state. So it sounds like your boys might be similar. Yeah. How old are you ones? Um, so oldest one is 12. So that was just occurring to me before that the same age that you were when you moved to Australia and moved away from your family. So when you said you were missing your mum, that broke my heart a little bit. Um, <laughs> our middle guy is 10 and our little girl is six. Okay. And yeah. um, it's uh, obviously a bit uh, pretty challenging. So yeah. That, yeah. What do you think the best way for you to outside of exercise? What are the other best ways you handle that? Yeah, so I think we really see with our kids, they get really rough and tumble and get a bit violent. And just at the point where you think that you can't deal with them anymore, you realize they've all gone up a clothes size and you're like, ah, that was just a big testosterone surge. And I Mm. think we really look at the menstrual cycles of women and the way that their hormones affect their behavior and all sorts of things. But we don't so much look at it with men and particularly like young boys, but understanding the way that Mm. those testosterone surges impact their ability to control their emotions and also really embracing the fact that they need that physical outlet like they need to have the rough and tumble and that physical side of it but I think just meeting them where they are and just giving them that safety net and um yeah we just always tell our kids that the world's a beautiful place we're not we're always going to love them we're not always going to like them or the choices that we make (laughs) Um, but putting in those really hard boundaries that have the most beautiful safety net next to them, that there's never anything that they could possibly do that they couldn't tell us and we wouldn't help them out of it. There's always going to be consequences for behavior, but I never want my kids to be frightened to tell me anything in the world that they've ever done. And we're always going to love them more than anything else. So, um, and you know, that's tricky with kids being on the autism spectrum because they see the world in a slightly different way. And, yeah, we've we've had to learn a lot. It's been a steep learning curve for us. And, yeah, I'm so grateful yeah. that they're our kids. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just wanted to, I've never um, spoken to anyone about, you know, how, how challenging it is for, you know, having a kid who has uh, autism. Yeah. And so, yeah, it would be difficult, you know, but mm-hmm. puts things in perspective for me as well and, makes me realize that my two boys fighting are just a normal part of being <laughs> <Strictly> normal <laughs> yeah um 
our big guy broke his leg in three places. So he's 16 weeks into non-weight bearing on his foot. So he did a um, spiral fracture in his tibia, snapped a growth plate off in his foot, and he needed four um, screws put across his ankle to stabilize it. And we've really realized how much that physical outlet was really important because he hasn't been able to do anything. You know, he usually plays, he plays basketball and he plays AFL. So five nights a week, he's training or he's playing boys. He's out doing all of that kind of stuff. Um, And because he couldn't do anything, his emotional regulation and control were just like, it was so tough for him. And he swims any other day that he's not playing sport. So yeah. we've actually started seeing a personal trainer for the first time. We managed to get him into a gym with one-on-one personal trainer. So at least he could do that upper body stuff yeah. and have that outlet. Even when he was on his scooter, he could at least go in there and, you know, hit a punching bag or whatever it was. Oh, completely awesome. different person, yeah. like completely different person. So yeah. it's, it's so uh, important for your mental health to have yeah. those outlets. Pretty important the exercise part, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And also just listening to your kids, because I think, you know, so often we try to be the best parents that we can, but I think the best parents are the ones that become who their child needs. And yeah. you haven't got a clue the people that your children are going to be when they're born. Like yeah. we couldn't have imagined that this is what our life would look like, but we just keep learning and growing with them. And yeah, none of us have ever done this before. I've never had, you know, I'm just about to have a teenager. I've never done that before. Yeah. So we just learn together and just love each other because there's nothing yeah. else that we can do really. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. So I believe that your second little boy was born prematurely at 31 weeks. Um, can you tell me what you remember about those early weeks? I imagine he was in a neonatal intensive care unit. Yeah, well, I was actually in France when he was born here because, mm-hmm. you know, we, Tanu and I flew over a couple of weeks earlier because you know, my brother was having health problems in PNG. So when we came right. over, I went to PNG and then she had, uh, you know, I think the waters broke or, you know, yeah, a bit earlier. And then I obviously had to go back to France for, to play and stuff. So I was over there. And then while she was here, uh, he ended up being born early, earlier mm. than uh, we expected. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, she was very well looked after. We had family here and in Brisbane and on the Gold Coast. So we had some family support there, which was very important. Mm-hmm. And in terms of Coven being born early, the NICU in the Griffith uh, Uni at, on the Gold Coast, man, I, I can't thank them enough. Hey, my my gratitude for them and how well they looked after your kid mm. is so good. They're phenomenal. And every time we were in there, she, uh, or Tineel was in there before I got here, was she just had the best things to say about them, all the nurses and the midwives. And... And so that made our experience, you know, very nice. And as, as difficult as it was, um, you know, we couldn't really, it, it was hard mm. because you wouldn't, you weren't able to have your kid at home, but just having the hospital there and all the support was outstanding. Mm. Now, if they're not there, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, it really, really is. So a big part of the reason that we, um, moved to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland was that we relocated um, from Canberra. Our little girl has a condition called autoimmune encephalitis um, and she frequently has really big seizures. Um, There's no paediatric intensive care unit in Canberra, which you don't know until you need it. (laughs) There's not one there. So we were airlifted to Sydney all the time um, and her longest seizure that she had was a 39-hour status epilepticus seizure. 
So she's put into an induced coma. She can't breathe for herself, you know, all of that kind of stuff. She's intubated. She's ventilated. Um, most traumatic, vile, horrible years of our life when she was really sick and we nearly lost yeah. her so many times. But the friendships that we have forged out of some of those healthcare professionals that showed up every single day and treated our baby girl like she was yeah. their own and like genuinely still love her now and have, you know, stayed up to date with her progress. And she's got yeah. a service dog now. She's got a seizure response service dog that can let us know sort of two to four hours before a seizure cluster starts. And so we can give her different medications to stop that from progressing. And she's yeah. now in prep. Um, so four hours a day, three days a week and just living yeah, the most amazing life. And there's no way that we would have that without those phenomenal health professionals around us. Yeah. It's, I, I can't thank them enough. And whenever I think of them, I, I see the, you know, NICU wars and I just walk past and go, man, this is just such an amazing support system to have. And very lucky, obviously, to have them here in Brisbane, Gold Coast. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sydney, well, so. aren't you lucky that he was born in Australia? Oh, well, yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, yeah. You know, my French wasn't that good. So I think our communication over there would have been very, you know, there'd be another, that would have been another challenge. Mm. Um, we would have been able to get through it, but just the support here in Australia with our family and the midwives was made our experience um, very good uh, having COVID earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and most babies that are born around that gestation would need platelets or different types of blood products. Um, I'm not sure if you remember if COVID needed anything at that age. Uh, I did ask Neil and he didn't need it at that age. You didn't? Wow. Yeah. So they would so, have had plenty of them on hand in the NICU though, had he required them. Yeah. And they were, they were in constant, they were constantly in and out, checking in on him. Yeah. And they were encouraging Neil to stay at home a bit more, be out of the hospital because it can get a bit um, repetitive and. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. be mentally hard as well. And so they were good like that. Mm. And yeah, I just I don't think he had any. Well, Tanil said he didn't. So, uh, but he was very well looked after. I could guarantee that. Wonderful. So we had a little bit of a chat before we recorded the podcast um, about how seeing Kobe and the other bubbers in the NICU and hearing stories like our daughter Marley and the Wotherspoon babies has really influenced your decision to become a blood donor as one of um, your activities in your retirement from your rugby league career. So we are very much looking forward to having you on the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood team. So yeah. thank you so much for that. Well, yeah, I definitely look forward to it. I remember one of the guys donating blood Benton Ridge I think yeah. it was in like 2013-14 and he was always donating blood and I was always scared too because thinking oh, I need this so I can have energy you know yeah <laughs> well, so it's, just... a, it's a completely new um, uh, world for me mm. um, I've been I've, I know that people have donated blood but uh, now that I've you know finished up mm. yeah, hopefully I've got some healthy blood to donate. I know there's a lot of need for it. So yeah, absolutely. happy to get the word out there for people to donate blood as well. Yeah, thank you. And that's what we say. You know, there's lots of people that come on our podcast that can't donate blood for a variety of reasons, but they're still very much part of the Milkshakes for Mali movement and community because they're sharing that message of how important yeah. blood donation is. And that's how people can play their part. So thank you for being on the podcast yeah. today and being a part of no that. No worries. I'll try and uh, record a footage or something and send it through to you. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so 
To sort of round it out, when you announced your retirement, I was struck with how much of a decision this was for your whole family and not just you as an individual. And to quote your beautiful wife, Tanil, um, one chapter closes, but a new one opens. I love what football has given us and where it has taken us. So proud of everything that David has achieved. He's inspired so many people and continues to do so. How much will your day-to-day life change for your whole family now that you've stepped away from professional sport? Yeah, so it's been about a month uh, of stepping away completely from training and that type of scheduling. Um, I have been meeting with a lot of people. uh, Tanil and I have been meeting with a lot of people nearly every day, so been quite busy ever since yeah so i haven't actually had some time to sit back and kind of reflect or you know think about what's happened because i'm planning for the next stage mm-hmm. um but i think moving forward i'll probably have a better answer for you in about four six months of <laughs> how different the scheduling is now but in terms of now i'm actually pretty lucky because i wake up and you know i don't have to go to training yeah um, the training facility and i get to you know go for a run and and then come home and then having breakfast with the boys taking them to school take them to daycare and then come home have our meetings and then go pick them up after school and Mm. daycare so i'm really enjoying that lifestyle yeah and yeah i think it's something i really enjoy so you know in terms of the scheduling i think it Hopefully it doesn't get too full on because I am enjoying what I'm doing now. So. You need to let yourself have a little bit of a break. Yeah. <laughs> um, do the boys enjoy watching football? I thought about this last night. We had the Broncos Roosters game on in the background and that's not something that we do very often in this house. I grew up on rugby league, but my hubby's from Tasmania. So he grew up on AFL and we have really tall kids. So they've ended up playing AFL instead. So yeah. there's always AFL on in this house. Um <laughs> Do the boys have any concept of the incredible career that you have had and do they actually watch the games or is it just what daddy does for a job? Coven's got no idea. He's only three, but, you know, he's seen a few things here and there. Yeah. Paxton was only probably the last year that he's kind of got a grasp of it because he was yeah. at school and the other kids are talking about Broncos, rugby league. Yeah. And so Pax understands that we've been to France for me to play rugby league, but... Mm-hmm. Not to do with my whole career. I think he'll probably learn a bit more as he gets older. Mm-hmm. The very final week when I was at Kumuls, because he's never wanted to play rugby league. Yeah. And he just wants to play soccer, AFL, try different sports. When I was in Kumuls camp that final week, he got to come and present me my jersey. Oh, wow. The night before and then watch me play the next night. And so when we got home from that weekend, he started kicking the footy around by himself in the backyard. You know? Yeah, interesting. And so I think that kind of got him a bit interested. But in terms of rugby league, he's probably only understood it for six months to a year because his friends are talking about that school. And Tanil will tell you, she used to, I wouldn't say hate, but she didn't like going to the games. Right. Because all he would do was just run around in the stands <laughs> and not sit still to watch the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he couldn't really avoid it. You know, we've really noticed since moving to Queensland that rugby league is like religion up here. Like Queenslanders love their sport, 
but yeah. rugby league is just everywhere. And I think Thomas has really noticed it. You know, he'll go to school and talk about the AFL and it's kind of something that's on on the weekend, but, you know, he started getting into it. He's ditched the Canberra Raiders and has become a Broncos fan recently and was highly unimpressed that I was interviewing you today and he wasn't <laughs> part of it. So <laughs> we might have to get the kids together to kick a football around at some yeah. stage. Um, would you encourage your boys to pursue a career in professional sport if it was something they wanted to do? 100 percent i wouldn't um you know obviously force them they can decide what they want to do but i think sport's just an important thing to be a part of because you learn how to be a, a, a team you yeah. work in a team and if you learn to work in a team you'll have a pretty good life mm-hmm. and you know everyone you know, all the good things come from sport that you can apply to work and at home mm-hmm. your training your you know uh your discipline, your focus, your concentration, communication with, uh, you know, your friends, your peers. So there's so many good things sport that ha- uh, that sport has taught me. You know, it, w- it would take me a very long time to write the list down, but yeah, I would 100% encourage every kid to be be a part of a team sport. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of like you know golf and tennis and stuff, but I think taking part in a sport where there's you know five or more people Mm -hmm. is good as well so I certainly encourage that yeah absolutely um so just to close this out blood donors have had such an impact on so many people that you love what message do you have for blood donors or anyone who's considering donating in the future yeah well I think it's uh, for me personally now if I'm telling myself advice obviously look into it and donate because there's a lot of need for it Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just never know that the donation you make will be the one that saves someone life, someone's life. So you know, from that perspective, it's, you know, it's kind of like a obligation if you're, if you're healthy and you can donate, mm-hmm. obviously talk to your doctor and, you know, go from there. So that's the advice I give myself first. And then I, you know, give the advice to everyone else yeah well we look forward to catching up with you next season when you have been a blood donor and we can catch up and see where you're up to and you know after you've had your six months let the dust settle a little bit what has come next um it's been so wonderful having you as a guest on the podcast and what blows my mind is that you've gone from being that 12 year old kid in Lismore that didn't even know how to talk to his mates or put his hand up in the classroom (laughs) Um, to being such an international star with your professional career, but also having your own podcast. Could you possibly have imagined with that kid that could, didn't want to string a sentence together <laughs> that you would have your you own? You know, when you put it like that. Based <laughs> completely on audio. When you put it like that, it's, uh, yeah, when you put it like that, it's strange. Yeah. Uh, I've never really thought about it like that because, you know, you get caught up in the day today, but yeah. I think that's a nice way to put it. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, I never would have imagined that as a 12-year-old, mate. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being part of the Milkshake Somali community and we can't wait to see what comes next. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me on. I am so grateful to David for his openness in this episode. Footy plays can get a pretty bad rap, but it's so nice to have a chat to such a lovely, humble man who came from such humble beginnings, but worked hard, had big dreams and have seen him achieve such amazing things. And I can't wait to see what comes next for David and his family. And I thank him so much for joining the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. 
To hear more from David, you can check out his podcast where he speaks with current and former athletes about what makes them tick, their life stories, the challenges they face, and most importantly, how they overcome them. I'll pop a link to the David Mead podcast in our show notes. Nothing feels more Australian, like the modern demonstration of mateship, than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher, with audio production by my husband and Marley's dad, Jeff. Our guest today was David Mead. To make an appointment to donate, please call Lifeblood on 13 14 95. Our Lifeblood team is called Milkshakes for Mali, and we have donors from all over Australia. So please join us and add your donation to our team tally. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked it, please share, us, share it with a friend. Leave us a review and make sure you are following us on Facebook and Instagram at Milkshakes for Mali. That's M-A-R-L-E-I-G-H. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my prize, Marley.